going to be reading the scripture for today, and that's Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. So Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they, are, they have given themselves over to sensuality as to indulge in every kind of impurity. They are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you have learned when you've heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which has been corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. This is the word of God. Well, we've been in a sermon series looking at the book of Ephesians and for the past few weeks, the question we've been asking is, what does it mean to grow spiritually? Or how do you experience spiritual maturity? That's an important question for all of us because there are some of you here today and you're brand new to church. You might not even identify as a Christian. Maybe you're exploring. And for you, that's a really significant question. What would it look like to experience spiritual change, to experience spiritual growth? There are others of you who do identify as Christians. You've been part of a church, maybe this church, for a long time And you're a little bit frustrated because as you look at your spiritual life, if you do some spiritual reflection and self-examination, you feel stuck. You feel stagnant. You're discouraged by how slow growth seems to be happening or maybe you discern there's no growth at all. And so wherever you are on that spectrum, the question, what does it mean to grow spiritually is an important one for us to be thinking about carefully. And this part of the book of Ephesians is all about spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. So today, if we're thinking about spiritual maturity, looking at this passage, and especially the last paragraph that was just read, I want to show you, if we're going to grow spiritually, there's something you need to resist, there's something you need to remember, and there's a way that you need to be renewed. There's something to resist, there's something to remember, and there's a way you need to be renewed if you're going to grow spiritually. So let's take a look. First, there's something that you need to resist. Look with me, if you would, at verse 22. Paul says, Your old self is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. That word corrupt, it means worn down, run down, exhausted. And the thing that Paul says is corrupting you, wearing you down, exhausting you, wringing you dry, are deceitful desires. Deceitful desires, desires that trick you, desires that con you. And here's the first thing we need to see this morning. If you're going to be a person who takes seriously spiritual growth, if you're going to think seriously about spiritual life, one of the enemies that you have to resist is deceitful desire. Desires that are playing tricks on you. Desires that are having their way with you. You say, well, what does that mean? 
To be human is to want things, right? We are wanting creatures. That's why sometimes even if you know a bowl of ice cream may not be the wisest thing to have, you still have it. Why? Because your longings and your desires sometimes overrule what you know cognitively to be a wiser course of action. Our desires are strong. And sometimes, oftentimes, our desires trick us and they deceive us. Now, I don't often do this, but sometimes it's helpful to call your attention to the Greek because that's the language that the New Testament was originally written in. And my goodness, if we were ancient people reading this text in Greek, when Paul says deceitful desires, we would instantly realize what he's talking about. Because the word desire, it's actually in Greek a compound word. The word is epithumia, two words put together. Now the word thumia means longing or desire. But the word epi, which is attached to the front, means over or above. And so what Paul's saying, the desires that will deceive you are the ones where you have over longing or over desire desire that's out of control and this is why some christian theologians throughout the course of history have said the fundamental problem with the human condition is what you could best call disordered love or over desire over longing one of the theologians that's helped me understand this almost better than anyone is a guy called augustine Augustine lived in the 4th, 5th century, and he would have described his whole life as one in which he was battling disordered love, whether it was love that he wanted from his parents, or later in life, love that he tried to find in sex, or even later in life, love that he tried to find by being a great philosopher and by being really smart. And his whole life was a battle with disordered love, and he has a spot in one of his books called The Confessions. It's a spiritual autobiography. He's writing his own story. And he gives an illustration, which to me is a kind of perfect summary of this problem that we all have of epithumia, of over-longing or disordered love. He writes about how he remembers when he was a teenager. One night he went out with a bunch of his friends, as teenagers do. And they broke into a neighbor's yard. And they went over in the back of the yard to their neighbor's pear tree. And they started stealing all the pears off the tree. And then they went away and basically threw all the pears off to the pigs. And so now, as someone later in life, looking back at that moment, Augustine says, why did I do that? Like, why did me and my friends break into our neighbor's yard? We liked our neighbor. (laughs) We broke into his yard and we just stole all his pears. And he says, it wasn't because we were hungry. They were actually from well-to-do families. They had plenty of pears at home. And it's not just that they had plenty of food, but the pears they stole weren't even particularly tasty. They were very mediocre pears. So Augustine's looking back and he's saying, why did I do that? Like what was motivating me to act in such a way that I knew was wrong? And listen to what he says. He says, had I been alone, I never would have done it. I remember my state of mind to be thus at the time. Alone, I would never have done it. 
He says, therefore, my love in that act was to be associated with the gang in whose company I did it. Now, friends, I hope you heard that. I'll read it again. Therefore, my love in that act was to be associated with the gang in whose company I did it. Do you hear what he's saying? Let me put it bluntly and kind of rhetorically. The reason he sinned is because he loved. The reason he did the wrong thing was because he was loving something in a disordered way. Is it wrong to want to fit in with your group of friends? No. Is it wrong to want to have friendships? Absolutely not. But if you love the acceptance of your friends more than anything, well, that's a disordered love that will sometimes lead you to do things that you ought not to do because you want to fit in and be accepted and belong. And Augustine's saying, my desires tricked me. I was loving something too much or in the wrong way. And as a result, I did something that I ought not to have done. And of course, that's just a reflection or a microcosm on his whole life, apart from Jesus. Now, let me give you a different example, an example that might be a tiny bit more relevant. I don't know that we have any pair thieves among us. But later today, we are going to have our dating conversation. So let me just, because we're talking about it as a church today, let me just use that as an example. Some of you really want to get married. And that's a good thing. To want to be married is a good thing. But for some of you, and maybe for many of us, that desire has grown from a good thing into an ultimate thing. It's become a kind of epithumia in which the inner monologue in your head is something like, I'm nobody until somebody loves me. Now, you might not say that out loud, but it's how you feel. Like my worth is dependent on someone wanting to be with me. And so because of that, you despair, you feel hopeless. As you think about your future, you can't see any hope apart from somebody coming into your life and meeting that desire, meeting that longing. Now, is it wrong to want to be in a relationship and want to be married? Absolutely not. But it is dangerous to say, until I have that person, I won't be okay. Because guess what? That person, that relationship, that longed for future, it's tricking you. Any person, any relationship, any promotion, any amount of money, any power, any status, those things are not big enough to heal your heart and to satisfy your soul. Your desires are playing tricks on you. And that's why Augustine, in the same book that I quoted from earlier, he said, God, you made us for yourself. And our hearts won't rest until they rest in you. What your desires do, what sin does, is it tries to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. Where you look at the really good things around you and you think, if I had that or if I had more of it, then I would be okay. And you're being conned. And what we need is what Augustine found. Because he had the relationships and he had the power and he had the status. And he said, God, you made us for yourself. And our heart won't rest until it rests in you. What do you need to learn how to resist? Deceitful desires. Epithumia, overlonging, disordered love, the things that are tricking you. How do you do that? There's something we need to remember. Come with me back in our passage to verse 22 and then again verse 24. 
Very interesting, Paul's talking about what it means to be a Christian. He says in verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life. Notice what he says, to put off your old self, which is, as we've said, being corrupted by deceitful desires. And then he says, verse 23, be made new and come down to verse 24 and to put on the new self, which is created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, (laughs) fascinating. Paul's using an image of someone who's taking off one set of clothes and putting on a new set. He's saying, before you were a Christian, before you believed in Jesus, you were wearing clothing that we can call the old self. That was your t-shirt, let's just say. Now, what is the old self? What does that mean theologically? Here's how we can simply summarize it. It's the self-salvation project. The old self is anything and all the things you do to try to be your own savior. It might be in another person. It might be being really moral, even being very religious. It might be crushing it at work and getting a promotion and making X amount of money. Whatever it is, we all have an old self, a self-salvation kind of project. And what Paul says is that when you become a Christian, that old self, that t-shirt comes off. And in its place comes a new self. And what's that new self? Romans 13 says to be a Christian is to be clothed with Jesus. That is, Jesus becomes your covering. Jesus becomes your robe, you might say, in which you're clothed, covered, robed in his perfection, his righteousness. Now, (laughs) this idea is what Christians call the doctrine of justification by faith. And it's one of the most sublime, stunning doctrines that you could ever encounter. And I'm going to spend just a couple of minutes trying to unpack it with you today because its richness is endless. Justification by faith means not just that if you believe in Jesus, you get your sin forgiven. We're all aware to some degree that we're not the people we should be. We all have gaps and areas of weakness in our life. And so we think, we come to God and we say, God, I need your salvation. I do all these things. I shouldn't do them. And God comes in and we think he forgives us, which means he wipes the slate clean. And that's true. If we trust in him, he does forgive us of our sin. But that's not justification. That's only part of it. Justification says not only do you take off the old self, that is, is your past, your sin forgiven, but justification means you get a new shirt such that when God looks at you, the ultimate, the only court that really matters, he doesn't just see your slate wiped clean, but he sees the beautiful, perfect righteousness of his son. When God looks at you, he sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ. So that when God said of Jesus, right, when the Father spoke from heaven, when Jesus was baptized, this is Matthew chapter 3, and heaven itself looked down and said, that's my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Do you realize that if you've put on the new self, if you've put on Jesus, that that's how God feels about you today? That's my beloved son. That's my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Why? Because the perfect, beautiful, righteous perfection of Jesus is credited to your account. 
You have his status. You have his record. That's justification by faith. You say, what does it mean? Friends, it means everything. There's not a person in this room or online, and there's not a person in our city who's not trying to be justified. What does it mean to be justified? To be accepted, to belong, to be seen, and to know that you matter, to know that you have some kind of significance. Every single person is trying to be justified, to prove themselves, to have a place at a table, to belong. And what we do, apart from Jesus, is try to justify ourselves. That's the old self. So we try to find a person and we say, if I have them, then I'll know I'm okay. And maybe you get them and you realize you're still not okay. So then you say, well, it's more money and it's a promotion and it's more power. And you get the job and you have the opportunity and you make all the money and your soul is still sad. So you think, fine, religion, it must be religion. I'm going to obey all the rules. I'm going to keep all the laws. I'm going to be a good person and you're not okay. And all you're doing is changing old self shirts. What you need is a new self. What you need is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account. Only when you have that can you rest. Some of you maybe have seen, it's an old movie, 1981, I believe, the movie Chariots of Fire. It's about a couple of British men who were sprinters and going to the Olympics. And there's one man called Harold Abrams. He, in the movie, wasn't a person of faith, wasn't a believer or Christian. And in this movie, he's describing the anxiety he feels. One spot in the movie is very powerful. He's describing why whenever a big race was coming up, he felt so profoundly anxious. He was irritable. He was a bit of a jerk to the people around him. He was just really anxious when a big race was coming. And so one of his friends said to him, why do you get so anxious when the big race is coming? And... Harold Abrams responds with brutal honesty, and he says this, I'm forever in pursuit, and I don't even know what I'm chasing. But when the race begins, I know that I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. 10 seconds to justify my existence. What's he saying? If I win one more race, then I'll know that I did it. Then I know that I matter then I know that I can be accepted. Then I'll know that I belong. So when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify myself. And you know what? He won a lot of races and that feeling never went away. What he needed was the new self. What he needed was the covering, the clothing of Jesus Christ. The new self is an entirely new way of being human. It's not more religion, being more moral, being better. It's being new. It's saying, I can't save myself. It's surrendering. The old self comes off. And you say, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to Jesus I cling. Covered by him. That's what you need to remember. If you're a Christian here today, how do you start resisting those deceitful desires? Remember your justification by faith. Remember who you are in Jesus. You say, how does that happen? Last point of our sermon. We need this way to be renewed. Come with me again back in our passage, verse 23. Paul says in verse 23, 
Put off the old self, verse 24, put on the new. How does it happen? Verse 23, you need to be made new in the attitude of your minds. So fascinating. What we're trying to do here is connect the dots. Deceitful desires come in, we need to resist them. We have our justification by faith. If you're a Christian, you're covered in Jesus. How do you connect those things? It's verse 23. Being made new in the attitude of your mind. Now, one pastor that I heard preach about this once said this verse, you could literally translate it. You need a deep transformation in the roots of your thinking. I love that. The way in which you connect your justification by faith to the deceitful desires that come into your life is through this deep transformation at the very roots of your thinking. You've got to go all the way to the bottom. And here's a big phrase, but here's what we need. We need the gospel, the truth of our justification to become our epistemological starting point in our thinking. You say, what does that mean? To be a Christian, to be growing in spiritual maturity means the gospel becomes the starting point for how you think about everything. How you think about your whole life. How you interpret anything that happens to you, anything that you want, anything that you need, you start to interpret it through the perspective of the gospel. Being made new in the attitude of your mind. So practically, here's what I mean. Right now, Some of you have deceitful desires. You have things that you're thinking about and you're thinking, if I just get that, then I'll be okay. And those desires are tricking you. Tomorrow morning, you're gonna wake up and you're gonna have deceitful desires. Longings and disordered loves for things. How do you resist them? You need to learn how to think out the implications of the gospel for yourself. Or another way to say it is, you need to learn how to preach the gospel to yourself how to tell yourself the gospel, how to talk gospel, talk truth about Jesus to those deceitful desires so you begin to suppress them and quench them. We have an example of this in the Bible, Psalm 42. There was a person who was experiencing a deep, dark depression. They were alone. They were isolated. They were nostalgic. They remembered a time in their life when everything was better and they missed it. Kind of a deep valley. But what's interesting is when you read Psalm 42, there's two spots in the psalm itself where it's almost like the writer of the psalm is looking at himself in the mirror and he says, self, I need you to listen to me. And he says, hope in God. I will yet praise him, my savior and my God. Like when those deceitful desires come in and they Make him feel like he's worthless. Make us feel like he doesn't belong. Make him feel like nothing is going the way it should. He says, self, listen. And he tells himself truth of the gospel. Do you know how to do that? Martin Lloyd-Jones, who has a, what was for me, a life-changing sermon on Psalm 42. He puts it this way. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in this life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you at the moment you wake up in the morning and talk back to them. Remind yourself, tell yourself of God, of who God is, of what God has done and what God has promised to do. 
That's transformation at the deep roots of your thinking. That's thinking out the gospel. Do you know how to do that? Have you learned the spiritual art of being made new in the attitude of your mind? Of being able to say to those deceitful desires, this is my justification by faith. I'm in Jesus. I'm safe. My future is secure. Anything bad that happens to me is only going to work out for good. I'm safe because I'm in him. Do you know how to preach the gospel to yourself? I remember some years ago, talking to a woman, she told me a bit of her story. She was a chef here in the city, and she was a very accomplished, very successful chef. And like many people, she cared a great deal about her work. And she realized in her profession, making great food, beautiful food for other people to enjoy, that her work wasn't just a way that she made money, it was how she got an identity. She felt something about herself because of the job she had. She connected her value and her sense of significance to being a great chef. And then one day she lost her job. She was let go. And that plunged her into a kind of existential crisis because she got an identity from this thing and she lost it. And so in this existential crisis, she finds herself going to a church. She hears the gospel. She puts on the new self. She becomes a Christian. She experiences Jesus covering her and clothing her. I met her a few months after that. And she was telling me some of her story, some of her journey. And she said to me, when I lost my job, I lost myself. Because my identity was found in the things that I made for other people. But now I'm a Christian. And my identity comes from what God is making of me. And that's an identity that I can rest in. Because it's an identity I can never lose. I said, you're right. She learned how to preach the gospel to herself. She learned a transformation at the deep roots of her thinking. Do you know how to do that? Are we being made new in the attitude of our minds? By God and by Christ, it can happen. As you remember your justification, as you think out the implications of the gospel and surrender yourself more and more to Jesus every day. Let's pray for that now. Our God, as we come to our time of response, help us as a people... Help us as a people to experience the new self. We're exhausted from trying to save ourselves. We're exhausted from trying to be our own sufficiency. So we surrender today. Help us to surrender today. Help us to be transformed at the deepest roots of our thinking, to think out and to think in and to think through the implications of the gospel that we are safe and covered in Jesus. Help us to be free. Help us to rest because we rest in you. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.